Jason Lewis. I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimist. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. And Todd is out this week on another one of his uh, lavish vacations. No, I actually think he has a long home project to work on, but you know, we'll pretend he's in the Mediterranean somewhere. Uh, but we're excited in his stead to have Flora Gladwin, our junior producer, joining us for this week's pod. She's a senior at Reed College here in Portland, Oregon, where she'll graduate this spring with a major in anthropology and environmental science. Welcome, Flora. Hi, Jason. And hi, Thomas. I am very excited to be on the show with both of you today. I feel like it's a very fitting one to have a young person, specifically a young woman, uh, talk about. We, we couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get to today's topic. First, wanted to make a quick pitch to folks. You know, while many podcasts have uh, sponsor funding or ad revenue, Climate Optimist, we rely on listener donations to bring you the content that you hear. And, you know, first, thank you to all our generous donors for their support. And if you're a regular listener and you haven't joined our supporting circle, consider hopping on our website and, and making a donation. Even just $5 a month goes a long way. And while you're there, take a moment to sign up for our monthly newsletter. It offers great facts on climate solutions, perspective on climate news, and tips on how to make a difference. And our February edition is set to come out in, in the coming week. Well, recently, there's been a fair amount of news coverage about how China's population has finally peaked and is beginning to decline. Most of the coverage has painted the event as negative even dire for you know our consumer-based economy without really talking about the bigger picture. And you know while it's true that a smaller China will come with challenges, there's really been no mention of how increasing consumption is a major driver behind climate change and biodiversity loss, or you know the benefits that generally come when a country moves from you know a phase of rapid population growth to one that's more stable or even declining. So given those deficiencies, we thought it would be good to have a bit more holistic dialogue on the topic and kind of what that means for China, the potential benefits of population decline in general, and of course, implications for the climate. So before we get into this complex but very interesting topic, uh, Thomas, what's this week's reason for hope? Yeah, Jason. So uh, according to the Energy Information Administration, only 14% of new electricity generation capacity that's going to come on online in the next year will come from fossil fuels. The remainder will be from renewables and a little bit of nuclear. So this total is going to be about 55 uh, gigawatts in capacity, and that's roughly enough for about somewhere between 18 and 26 million US homes or course about double that of european homes because of efficiencies <laughs> uh, but yeah in in particular it's set to be uh, a big year for uh, solar in 2023 and they'll more than double their previous record for solar installations um, in a single year so great move and we're seeing similar things in australia although unfortunately here um the government recently stepped in and um artificially held down the uh the price of, of gas, which 
Um, while it creates some short-term relief, unfortunately what it does is it keeps us hooked on it for a little bit longer. So hopefully they can um, learn from what's happening in some other countries and go, right, instead what we need to be doing is helping people out of gas furnaces and other things that are keeping um, their energy costs high and help them transition to a zero carbon future. Maybe this is just like a former British colonies issue, right? Because clearly, <laughs> clearly, clearly Europe gets it. You know, Europe is making a hard pivot away from fossil fuels so that they fix the problem for good. And, you know, whether it's the US or Australia or others, it seems like, you know, the fixation is still on how do we get more of this so we can keep prices down and not hurt consumers, even though, you know, long term, it's going to hurt consumers a lot more if we let uh, climate change continue to unravel. Yeah, I guess it's that, like, I don't know, people say it's maybe the short-term election cycle. Someone was saying to me the other day that, oh, you know, we need to be looking at longer electoral terms. But, um, I mean, they have similar electoral terms in in Europe. So I I think a big part of it is, like, we've just got to get out there and educate people that uh, we we really need to move quickly to a zero-carbon economy rather than just, um, you know, doing the same old status quo. Yeah, I totally agree. So our guest today is Hannah Evans. Hannah joined us this past summer to talk about overpopulation, and we're excited to have her back to explore, you know, this different facet of the topic. Hannah is a senior analyst at Population Connection, a nonprofit focused on helping stabilize world population at a sustainable level with the Earth's resources through, you know, a combination of education and advocacy. Her work investigates how population dynamics intersect with global social, political, economic, environmental systems, and advocates for solutions that combat both climate change and societal injustices. Complex stuff. Uh, Before joining Population Connection, Hannah worked as an adjunct professor of women's studies and taught classes on gender, science, and feminist theory. She holds a BA in environmental policy, natural resource conservation, and political science, and a master's in political ecology from San Diego State University. Hannah, welcome to Climate Optimist. Or welcome back, I should say. Really happy to be back. Thank you for having me again. So... Let's let's start out with the, the question we always do, and you can add new bits um, based on things that have occurred since then. But when it comes to efforts to address climate change, what what makes you hopeful? Always a great question. <laughs> I am feeling really hopeful these days. I think that climate change is working in accordance with a lot of other global issues, the pandemic, the kind of uh, geopolitical situation that we have to to really push people in different directions to help people rethink things and to approach life from not from the perspective solely of a consumer but from the perspective of a global citizen and I think we're kind of figuring out exactly what that looks like it's very unclear still but amidst all of the tragedies uh, that are occurring because of climate change and the pandemic and um, you know wars and all of this all of this sort of precarity. I think that that's one real silver lining that I see that I'm I'm excited about. And I'm always really excited as well about about what young people are doing. I think that the younger generations are really 
uh, changing the status quo and shifting paradigms just through their actions and behaviors and uh, through their advocacy. So that makes me hopeful as well. Yeah, I, I hear you on the younger generation. I think I think there's a lot of folks that are involved in the climate movement, but the percentage of young people that are getting involved and really trying to disrupt is is super encouraging. Yes. Well, let's have you talk a little bit about um, what Population Connection is and, and your role there. Sure. So Population Connection is a U.S.-based nonprofit organization that advocates for increased U.S. funding for family planning programs internationally. Um, we also do a lot of domestic work, specifically in like outreach and education. And our education is focused on the connections between population and demography and other sort of social and environmental issues like women's empowerment and environmental sustainability or climate change, for example. So we work in both the advocacy and educational spheres to um, help people better understand kind of the, the global state of the world as it relates to, to population and to help people better understand the connections between things like gender equality and women's empowerment and uh, climate adaptation and resilience building. And I work as a senior analyst here. So I do a lot of uh, research and public speaking, uh, specifically focused towards um, college level students and, and professors to articulate this message and related messages. And um, I do a little writing as well. Well, it's, it's definitely important work to get the message out, you know, and, and not just make people aware, obviously, of the you know, population situation, but how, you know, how I'm learning how very interconnected it is with other, with other issues. Absolutely. Well, for folks who may not have heard our, our last conversation about overpopulation and don't have the context, can you start with just kind of giving a little bit of an explanation about how climate change and overpopulation are linked to one another? Sure. Unfortunately, that's not that short of a story. It's quite complex, <laughs> but I'll try to keep it as, as quick as possible. So there are many different connections between population and climate change. The world's least developed countries uh, have populations that are the fastest growing um, alongside really high poverty rates and really high levels of marginalization and, ex and exclusion, social, political, economic exclusion. Um, so this means that even though, you know, these populations are growing the fastest and have the highest fertility rates, they're not usually contributing that much to climate change or to environmental damage. But um, because of their socioeconomic status and level of development, they're very susceptible to climate impacts and they have a really high level of climate vulnerability. And so this right. is a very clear climate justice issue because the populations that are the least culpable for climate change are the ones that are um, most vulnerable to and at risk of um, experiencing its effects. And on the other end of the spectrum, we've got high income countries, affluent and uh, industrialized nations that usually have, you know, what are known as like stable populations, not, not increasing or decreasing or even declining populations. And these 
these areas have really high environmental outputs, both at the individual and country levels. So even though there's a, a smaller proportion of the population and it's not growing, their environmental outputs and their contributions to climate change are disproportionately higher, astronomically right. so, than most of the, the poor regions. And then in the middle, we've got the low to middle income countries or the emerging markets. And this represents the majority of the Earth's population, about 80% uh, of the global population and I think around 5 billion people. And in wow. these situations, in these contexts, you know, places are industrializing. So the same, in the same ways that industrialized nations have, have you know, been able to increase the provision of social services, help people become healthier, get better educated, and, and consume at higher levels, um, this, is, this is all now happening with most of the world's population as well. So, of course, this is something that we, you know, from a moral and ethical perspective, would all applaud and help facilitate and, and understand. And I think that, you know, this is, this is something that from a population perspective and from a social perspective yields a lot of advantages because whenever people are better educated and able to participate in the economy at higher levels, their fertility rates drop and, and population growth slows. But within the context of climate change and the sort of impending dangers that we're now seeing, this is something that we need to talk about and be more comfortable kind of openly discussing. And this is not to, to blame any certain population or to say that only certain places and people are able to industrialize and develop and, and increase standards of living? Of course not. I think for, for me, whenever I think about this issue, it really speaks to the fact that we need to change the ways in which we're producing food and energy. We need to shift our oh. economic incentives away from um, viewing growth through consumption. So, you know, clearly the one thing that's you know, obvious with all of this is it's it's complicated, right? You you have countries in different stages of development, very different incomes, very different consumption levels, and things aren't set up in a way that are equitable at this point. And so, you know, given our sort of environmental boundaries, what's happening with climate change, what's happening with biodiversity loss, clearly there needs to be be a change. And, you know, it sounds like reducing fertility rates for those kind of industrializing countries and developed countries better positions them, you know, from a, from a climate perspective, given, you know, the vulnerabilities that come with, with having more folks. Exactly. So I, I guess that enables us to kind of jump into this discussion of population decline, which has been in the news a lot lately, and specifically what's happened in China, which is in 2022, their population actually shrank, you know, for the first time in a very long time. There's obviously been a number of fears that are being raised about that. And I wonder if we could start with kind of maybe you talking about what are those fears and, and do they actually have merit? Sure. Yes, I'm, I'm happy we're discussing this because it has been in the news a lot lately. And I think that both sides are not being adequately presented. And it's, it's so interesting that we're, you know, in this position where now I think there's a a real unified consensus about the fact that humans activities are, are causing climate change and that population is is related to that um, in a lot of ways unless we you know restructure things as we were talking about 
And yet the second we find out that populations are declining in some places, it's considered this like catastrophe and everybody needs to, to worry and, um, you know, all of this, there's like this impending doom happening. And it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting to me because, you know, whenever I read headlines like that, I, I think it's a real opportunity. And I think it's, um, again, like a, an invitation for us to really look at what this can mean for the future of economic growth, for the for the meaning of prosperity, and for many different countries around the world. China is one of them, but there are many that are starting to experience low fertility and declining populations into the future. A lot of economists are very worried about the decline in population because you know, traditional economics views growth through consumption, which requires a steady stream of global uh, population increases, right? We need um, more people to consume. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But obviously from an environmental, social, political perspective, that's not necessarily viable. Seeing this system, you know, produce a lot of inequality and um, ecological imbalance that's now threatening the, the future of life on earth as we know it, at least in terms of humanity. Yeah, I think from a demographic perspective, China, it, it, it is, you know, I, I understand that uh, it is a little probably disappointing and unfortunate the way that the the population has um, grown and then declined uh, so so rapidly but um, that's also a direct consequence of many different failed policies that have been coercive that have dictated the amount of children people can have that have forcibly enacted these regulations and these policies to the extent that now, even though there are um, ostensible incentives to for people to have children, uh, people don't don't want to and won't. So it sounds like you know most of the angst is around economics, but there's sort of this irony that our economic model is sort of doomed to fail anyway if it's just based on population growth because that means infinite resources which we clearly don't have. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, I guess, potential benefits. So trying to, you know, speak to the other side of the coin, what what this could mean for China and, and for other nations that are that are in a decline. Yes. So it's important to understand that lower fertility rates in terms of the developmental trajectory of a country almost always indicate that people are healthier, better educated, and that women are more empowered. And that is certainly the case in China. China's population is shrinking and it's aging, but its people are better educated and um, living longer lives than any other time in the country's history. In addition to that, there are more expanded educational opportunities that guarantee a spot in a university for almost every person born today in China. I'm taking this from a recent New York Times article that I really liked on the subject. That's exciting. So, yeah. So population decline, let's let's first recognize that it, it is the consequence of people's lives improving. In addition to that, of course, fewer people would ostensibly mean that there's going to be also a, a reduced uh, ecological footprint for humanity and a reduced competition for finite resources. The same New York Times article that I was kind of citing before 
even goes so far as to say that this could mean greater peace because governments are going to be forced uh, to choose between spending on things like military and equipment or on pensions. Wow. So I think that with population decline, there's a real opportunity for governments to invest in the people who are already inhabiting the country. Now, as we're, we're getting into this age where we're living longer, we can kind of revisit um, retirement age. Retirement age in China is quite young in comparison to the United States. It's, it's about 50 to 55 for women and 60 for men. But also it's going to, it's no longer going to be, it's not going to be the same in the future, right? Because our demographic situation is going to be, is going to be different and there's going to be more old people than there are young people. So there's not as much of an opportunity for workers to, you know, contribute to the economy and, and to pay for um, the, the older populations to survive and, and uh, prosper, if that makes sense. But instead of looking at that as a negative, I think governments can instead say, hey, you're a low wage worker. Let's invest in education for you. Let's, let's have you go to college. Let's have you participate in the economy at higher level. Let's make sure that you're, you're healthier. Um, let's invest in your well-being like a lot of you know, other countries in Scandinavia, for example, do quite well and see you know, where that takes us. Um, I don't think it has to be a disaster at all. And I think it's a real opportunity for us to, to fine tune um, our systems in ways that facilitates more equitable distribution of wealth and, and resources. Sounds like a number of points that the folks that are writing the articles about population decline need to include um, when, when, they're, when they're talking about all these perceived negatives without the positives. Right. Um, I, you know, I can't help myself as we're talking, you know, obviously about climate overpopulation and vulnerability, thinking about whether, you know, countries that are wanting to, you know, have maybe a more, you know, wanting to have a slower decline in their population rather than a rapid one, whether there's an opportunity given the fact that we know that, you know, they're, they're already climate refugees. We know there are going to be many more climate refugees. And if, if that, poten- that potentially presents an opportunity, right, for those folks who are in need of a home and these countries that are maybe in need of a younger population to help um, take care of their, their aging population. Absolutely. And I think that's another aspect of this conversation is that in order to kind of maintain economic stability, at least as we've defined it, um, it's going to be really necessary for, for many countries to uh, you know, accept and, and welcome in more immigrants. And from a climate justice perspective, that really makes sense if it's the industrialized countries receiving uh, climate refugees. And again, as you as you put perfectly, it's a, an opportunity for countries to, uh, you know, create more stability within the workforce. Um, the the countries. I, I don't think that most countries are seeing population declines in such rapid numbers as as China is experiencing, and that's because of again China's policies. But that. I want to just make clear that that demographic situation is daunting and is unfortunate, as I said before, um, because everything is happening so quickly and because the the economy has not really 
developed or had enough time to kind of industrialize and develop in ways that have yielded more widespread and, and equitable distribution of capital and resources. So, you know, as we're, we're talking about population decline, I, I'm wondering, you know, given all the challenges of overpopulation, how do we, you know, ensure a more, you know, holistic dialogue? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's something that needs to, it's a, it's a dialogue that needs to be had. Um, I think right now it seems like there's the environmental perspective, which is, um, you know, very wary of, of environmental degradation and everything that um, causes it, including, uh, you know, population, consumption, resource use, and and so on. And then there's the economic perspective, which seems to view those things as being inherent to uh, human prosperity. And I think that from both perspectives, we can, you know, find a, a way to to come together and to look at the environment as not being separate from the economy and the economy not being separate from the environment. I think there's real opportunity here for us to, again, re-envision what the future of the planet looks like in a context in which, you know, consumption is not the be-all end-all for growth. So I think that, you know, all of this is sort of happening anyway. I think, as I said before, climate change is um, forcing us to kind of have these conversations. We're coming to a period of time in our history where resources are becoming increasingly finite and fueling conflict and fueling um, food insecurity and, and really making us sit with, you know, the systems in which we've created. Well, and it, and it seems like the, the key is sort of, you know, your latter point, which is not just, you know, being able to be honest about the connection between you know, a growing human population and consumption and how that impacts the environment, but that there is, you know, an opportunity, you know, maybe a better version, if you will, of society in which we aren't dependent on that consumption and we do value our environmental systems that support us. And it doesn't need to mean, you know, uh, you know, economic collapse. Absolutely. And in Japan, in fact, you know, this is a, a country that has been aging very quickly and has had a declining population since like 2008 or 2010. Um, but their GDP has really remained the same uh, since I think the 90s. And technological innovations have uh, supported, you know, labor supply and governments have invested more heavily in their citizens. Um, but, you know, still there's an opportunity to uh, do better there. But I think that we can use different examples of uh, industrialized countries that are doing quite well economically, um, despite, you know, declining populations as, a, as, a, as proof that this is not, you know, a, a catastrophe and it's not anything that we need to, to panic about. So, so given that and the fact that, you know, we're sort of going to be forced, whether we like it or not, into, you know, consuming less. We so sort of choose it on our terms or it's kind of forced upon us. Um, how do we help those, you know, those countries that are still grappling with, you know, higher fertility rates and in turn, you know, um, marginalized roles for women, et cetera? Like what, you know, what can the U.S. and, you know, wealthier countries in Europe and otherwise be doing to help with that situation? Well, I think one 
major aspect of this is simply learning more about what's actually going on throughout the world. I think in the United States, we're often very sheltered and um, excluded for some reason with the, from you know the broader sort of global context of things. But um, there's a lot happening and there's a, a wide variety of humanitarian crises all around the world that um, are in urgent need of, of help. So if we can educate ourselves about uh, this and, and where you know there is a direct need, then we can do what we can to contribute to, to the solution, whether that be through you know aligning yourself with a nonprofit or an advocacy group or even talking to people about what's happening in specific places. Um, I'm thinking of the Horn of Africa. I know you, you emailed me about that yesterday. This is a, a region not unlike a lot of other places in Africa that is experiencing really rapid population growth amongst, uh, you know, really low income situations and, and populations and really high, high levels of climate vulnerability. So there's been a lot of food insecurity because of droughts and um, unpredictable weather patterns. And, you know, it's, it's contributed to a really large scale famine. Um, that is occurring right now. Yeah. The more that we can kind of uh, attune ourselves to these realities, um, the, the better equipped we're going to be to find solutions. And I hesitate to say, you know, this is, this is the best solution. You should do this or that. So I think it's, sure. um, we need to really connect deeply within ourselves and figure out what we care about, what we're passionate about, and um, what difference we want to make on this planet. I think that there's myriad ways to to do that, and there's no right or wrong answer. So long as you really take the time to to figure out what it is uh, you're passionate about and and how you want to contribute. I like that. So you know, let's all find kind of our our own call to action with the idea that you know there's plenty of places to contribute, and and you know, in this idea that it all starts with awareness, and the more we know about the problems and the injustices going on, you know, it gives us an opportunity then to you know, to figure out what we're passionate about and then apply that energy accordingly. Yes. And of course, I would also highly recommend, you know, going to the Population Connection website and becoming a member and contributing that way as well. Um, we have, you know, plenty of ways to get involved and the advocacy and, and sort of international development work we're doing is really impressive. But I just want to also put out there that, you know, this is, that's one of many different ways that we can make a difference. And I think within environmental circles, at least in, in my experience, um, and as it relates to climate change, I think that we get into this sort of like paralysis of being so uh, overwhelmed with everything that's happening at these big sort of macro global scales. And, um, you know, we, we internalize a lot of guilt about our own uh, part in this and um, our, our contributions to the problem. But uh, I, I hope that we can work to get a, away from that, um, not because we shouldn't be responsible about our consumption patterns or the way that we're living our lives, but because I think that this is a really good time for us to be envisioning what a utopian future might look like and then um, from there, living out our actions without judgment or, you know, being being too hard on ourselves. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it turns out, you know, for a lot of people, once you are able to get involved, 
um, you know, you immediately feel a little bit better about, you know, what's going on in the world. So definitely. Well, Hannah, thanks for coming to join us again and, uh, you know, talk more about overpopulation and this dialogue about population decline and some of the misplaced fears that are, yeah, appreciate you coming on the show and helping us get smart. Thank you so much for having me. I will come back as often as you'd like. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, Flora, Thomas, uh, what did you guys think of the of the interview? thought it was super interesting. I feel like in general, we kind of can't talk about climate change without getting into the topic of population. But at least for me, you know, in in school still, population is kind of a contentious topic, you know. I think in the past, in curriculum, it was kind of seen as a negative thing because it was a way for more like Western nations to kind of displace some of that or at least to place some of the responsibility for a lot of like big climate change trends on less affluent nations. Right. Um, and so I really liked the way that Hannah, you know, responded in this interview kind of to that, that big issue. So to treat population, which I mean, obviously is a real concern as sort of an adaptation problem instead of a mitigation one. So more focused on, you know, what are we going to do with climate change getting worse, you know, with people, having to move with more and more people being affected by all of this, you know, how are we going to make sure that they have the resources, the finances, rather than just a, a sort of tool of control? I thought that was was really well, really well said by Hannah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, while it has had a, you know, a contentious history, you know, it shouldn't prevent us from talking about it. And clearly, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, Hannah's reframing, I think is really what we should be focusing on, which is, you know, these nations that the wealthy world, if you will, is going to be, you know, impacting with climate change, or rather our, our historical emissions are impacting them. You know, we have an opportunity to help them out, um, provide better education for, for young women, access to contraception so they have more, you know, bodily autonomy. And mm-hmm. it turns out that it actually helps make them more resilient in the face of you know, whatever it be, droughts, floods, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. And that's, I mean, a good way to put it, an opportunity. Even more than that, I think a responsibility for sure. And I I mean, I couldn't help, and obviously Hannah and I got into it a little bit, thinking about this being, or, you know, this population decline in China and and other nations that are seeing maybe a more rapid decline on the horizon, like let's say South Korea, um, as an opportunity to help, you know, again, help countries where folks are already being displaced, you know, and and falling under what we call like a climate refugee title, right? The reality is that even if we do our best to ratchet down emissions, those displacements are going to rise rapidly. The think tank IEP said that there could be as many as 1.2 billion uh, people displaced by 2050. So yeah, it's not to say that we need to move 1.2 billion people to to China, but that these countries where there's maybe a concern about having a workforce to be able to support those who are aging, it seems to me a very, you know, equitable and logical opportunity. Look, I, I think that last point you brought up is similar to what uh, stirred in my mind when I was listening to the interview. I, I definitely have concerns around uh, cherry picking the people that get to migrate and those that don't. Um, 
I know, I know David Suzuki has similar concerns where your know, Western nations have become a little notorious for taking the, the doctors and the engineers and you know, the people with education out of these communities because they might be short of them themselves. And meanwhile, we leave behind the, the most unfortunate and the least able to look after themselves. And then we continue to have the uh, population problems in those nations because we know that um, you know, education, especially of women, is directly linked to being able to keep these population numbers in check. So the, the other one too is this concern I, I often hear from, especially people in the, the boomer generation, who's going to look after me when um, we get old? And I, I think a lot of that is those concerns are misplaced because of productivity improvements. And when we look at typical productivity improvements, it's you know, every 20 to 40 years, let's call it every generation, there's almost a doubling in productivity. It doesn't matter whether it's farm productivity or manufacturing or uh, you know, even on a domestic side you know, with new devices, automatic vacuum cleaners and dishwashers and all this sort of technology allow a smaller number of people to look after more people in their old age. So I think that these concerns are very much misplaced right now and we've just got to get people comfortable with the fact that, yes, there might be less people looking after more in the future, but they'll be equally as capable or more capable of doing so because of these technology improvements. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, kind of about some of the adjustments that we're going to have to make. So in this case, you know, tech improvements. Um, but then also, I think there's a big question that kind of Hannah teed up for us that I don't exactly know how to get at. So I wonder if either of you have opinions in terms of how we're going to work with maybe shifting the economy in the future. Climate change is super connected to the economy, which is obviously something we've talked about in the podcast before. But she brought up the point more specifically that with decreasing you know, rates of fertility, decreasing amounts of people, when we have an economy that's based on consumption, you know, go, 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 we start to worry, right? There's a concern that as that consumption is dropping, we're going to get into trouble. So do either of you have any ideas on what a shift might look like? I'm glad Good you question. teed us up for a really easy question, Flora. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that uh, Thomas or I, you know, any more equipped, equipped. to speak Fair to it, but I, I, I think Hannah's right. And increasing consumption in, you know, industrialized nations has has fueled a massive hunger for fossil fuels. Right? It, it's clear to me that it's it's not sustainable. And you know, fixating on China's population decline and sort of, you know getting all doomsday about how it impacts economics is sort of focusing on the speed bump in front of us instead of the cliff further down the road. Right. And so, yeah, th there's an, there's an opportunity, I think, to rethink that. And I, you know, I know part of it hinges around things like, you know, circularity, you know, having more durable products, right. That can be repaired rather than just thrown in the dump. I don't know, Thomas, I mean, maybe, maybe just this clarifies the fact that we need to have an episode focused on how do we, you know, <laughs> How do we change our consumption habits, right? Well, I, I think if we roll the clock back 50 years, like humans in developed nations weren't called consumers. They were civilian or civilian or military, right? Like the fact that we've been branded this label consumers now, 
just indicates to me that marketing's got really carried away. Like they, <laughs> it's business, right? That loves the fact that they can keep selling you rubbish year after year. And to the point where that has become your identity as an individual in a developed nation. So yeah, I, I'm, I totally agree. We need to move away from that. And how we go about doing that in my mind is better regulation around um, disposable items, around durability of products. And we're seeing that happen already with the banning of single-use plastics. Um, I think that will definitely be part of it. The other thing to remember too is that as that population taps out in these developed nations, we don't have to spend a massive amount of resources on building new buildings. And and that infrastructure, not just the homes that these people live in, but the, the public infrastructure, the hospitals, the train stations, all these other you know, ancillary requirements that come along with a growing population, that doesn't need to happen anymore. And we know that you know, buildings account for about 40%, you know, 39, 40% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions. So if we can put a cap on that and sure, there's still going to be emissions associated with the operation of these buildings, but it will hopefully be less as we can focus on building or, or, or renovating what we have and making it more efficient. So I guess as usual, all this leads to the question of, of what can we do? And, you know, for this week, I'd like to encourage folks to, you know, consider a donation to Population Connection uh, and or, you know, sign up to be a part of their volunteer network. You know, Hannah and, and her team there uh, at Population Connection are, are doing great work educating folks on the benefits of a stable population, you know, their advocacy work for policies like, you know, increasing funding for women's education and, and contraception is fantastic. So, you know, if this topic speaks to you, then I would uh, encourage folks to head over to their website and, and uh, see how you can plug in. You two have any other suggestions? Yeah, we actually haven't talked yet about the fact that March 8th, which is coming up soon-ish, is International Women's Day. Um, and obviously, we've already addressed that point that you kind of can't talk about, you know, climate change and population without talking about women's issues. International Women's Day has a theme this year of Planet 5050 by 2030, Step It Up for Gender Equality. So I think that that's a really good opportunity to either get involved. There's actually a website for International Women's Day. Yeah, and we'll link that in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks, Flora. So, yeah, as usual no shortage of, of ways to get involved. And yeah, we'll have a link to the Population Connection uh, website as well. So that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Come back on February 28th when we'll be talking with one of the climate leaders in Congress, super excited about this, about how we can make progress uh, on climate despite a, a divided government. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. Mm-hmm.